Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Dangerous Rhetoric. This is episode 116. It's been a while. We've had a little break. Daniel is still breaking. He has to get his self situated in his new location. So we are just, the show must go on. So we are continuing. He will be back. Don't worry. Um, for now, you can stalk him on Instagram if you would like at Dan DeLaFay. Um, today, we are talking to Chad Manley, AKA uh, Seth Palish who is the, uh, an author and Twitter friend of mine. And uh, we, we're gonna get into some general discussion about art later on. But uh, thank you very much, uh, Chad, for joining us. <laughs> Which name should I use? <laughs> uh, you can call me Seth, that's all right. Seth, okay. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me. Glad to be back. Yeah, no problem. Um, so do you just want to give people a little brief intro blurb, like pitch your book, basically? Like, Yeah. So, uh, oh, geez, how much should I say? Uh, we've talked about it a little bit before in the podcast, but um, yeah, so it is uh, a, I wanted to uh, poke a little bit of fun at uh, the wealth of um, LGBTQ books in the young adult genre uh and so in order to do that i uh wrote my own <laughs> essentially <laughs> that's a good way um, to wrote, do it yeah yeah and i i wrote my own that's uh kind of a comment and pokes fun at uh that weird subgenre that's quickly becoming a a i don't even know if it's you should even call it a subgenre anymore because it's so big but uh yeah it's about a high school baseball player who is in the closet and uh, faces a number of obstacles on his, uh, as he tries to stay in the closet, although social circumstances uh, are pushing him to uh, come out. And that's, that's probably all I feel like saying. Uh, I don't want to spoil it, you know, for, for in case anyone does want to read it, but yeah, oh, it's, it's a great romp. <laughs> go go read it definitely definitely go read it um I how did you how did you get the idea you just got kind of like you know uh, a little bit like overloaded with the the genre and you were like i want to make a critique i want to comment on this and then you did it in the vehicle of of a story yeah so um it was kind of a roundabout way of how i did it because um, I had sought traditional publishing in the past with another book I had written, which I have since shelved because it's trash. So don't expect any, don't expect that to see the light of day. But <laughs> I, had, I had tried to, to um, get into traditional publishing. But uh, for anyone who's not familiar with that, basically, you don't if you have a book, if you've written a book, you don't send it to like penguin publishing or random house you don't or you know any publishing company you don't do it that way you have to get a literary agent and then the agent negotiates on your behalf to the publishing houses to try to get you a good book deal and for that they get like 15 percent. it's kind of like when you're selling a house you get a realtor because you don't know probably unless you're a realtor you don't know all the ins and outs of how to sell real estate so you find someone who's an expert to represent you. It's essentially like that. Um, the the thing is, uh, the literary agents, you know, that community is pretty small. It's pretty close knit. They're all in New York City, which means that they're all 
uber liberal and they only want to represent books that you know they themselves enjoy or like to read which you which makes sense right if i were in their position i would not want to represent a book that i thought was not very good or that i just didn't like but they all have uh what's called manuscript wish lists where they put they list the types of books that they want to see in their inbox right and uh sometimes the wish lists are pretty broad and sometimes they're really really specific you know, I've seen, I want to see a 17, a, a historical romance that takes place in 17th century uh, Eastern seaboard America and deals with class struggles. I've seen that. And I have seen mermaids. Just give me something with mermaids. So, well, the thing is, a lot of them want to see, uh, like, queer stuff. Um, and they, they make a point of saying, we want uh, diversity, we want diverse voices, we want own voices, which I think is really another story. Um, but what they have all made pretty clear is that they do not want to, because most of them are women, they don't want to represent books and genres that women typically don't read. Um, and so seeing how I had just written um, a sports book I, um, which was the book I shelved, I realized this is not going to happen. Also, like, they're just going to see, you know, uh, a white conservative guy and they're going to say no. And that sounds like I'm joking. That sounds like an, an exaggeration. But after the 2020 election, these literary agents were openly talking on Twitter about how they would never let conservative they would never work with conservative authors they thought conservatives should have no voice in publishing at all that's insane because you know the books that they represent that end up getting published in america like that's what people are reading like how you know you, you see the problem here um so anyways i i kind of just said screw it uh these people don't really care about um, representing art. They don't even really care about representing something that's going to make money. They just care about representing uh, books that they can brag about, essentially. That's why you want to see, you want to do something crazy? Go into Barnes & Noble or your local big chain bookstore and walk down the young adult section. And it's going to be filled with like gay this, gay that, trans this, queer that, and you know these books don't like they don't make any money these these books make next to no money but somehow they still get published they still get like over and over and over again books like this get published and the reason is they just like the agents just represent them because uh they want to brag about it they want to they want to say oh well i you know i was the agent for this author who wrote a book about a non-binary latinx witch and i think that's pretty cool so i was like okay if if i want to get traditionally published basically i have to win the acceptance of these people and that's not something i would want in any other context um so i was like all right i'm just going to write a book where i make fun of them and i'm going to publish it myself so fun
<laughs> yeah, that was I, a very long-winded answer, and I apologize. But no, it's fine. It's fine. It's perfect. Um, and you did give a good. You know, that was sort of the experience I had. I I put myself published a fantasy with a gay protagonist in like 2016, 17. I forget when it was um, that I finished it, but um, and that was the fun experience that I had trying to go and get an agent. And it was, uh, it was, it was interesting. You know, I had a couple of agents that were interested and then they sort of like read the first bit of it and then just sort of was like, no, never mind. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, I guess it doesn't have the, uh, whatever the je ne sais quoi that they were looking for. Um, but it was a fun story to write and I liked the characters and it was a good exercise in just like writing fiction. But, yeah. uh, How fiction long was it, if you don't mind me asking. Oh, I think it was like 82,000 words-ish. Okay. okay. So it was like 180 pages, 190 pages, depending on how you cut it. Um, well, if it's in a book, if it's a hundred or if it's 80,000 words, it'd probably be like 320 pages in, in a normal sized book, I think. Yeah, well, it was like, it was standard novel length. Like, I, I think it was, yeah. I think yeah. it was about 82,000 words. Especially for a debut author. And it was supposed to be the first of a trilogy. I still have the rest of the story in the back of my brain somewhere and scribbled out in notes. And I'll, I might finish it one day. Yeah. Um, but it's gonna. I, it's just on the back burner for now. Um, so how did you... So what, what about stories we can maybe branch more generally into yeah. uh, media today? One of the things that drives me nuts is that everything is derivative. You know, everything yeah. is an adaptation of something else. Um, you know, out here on Fire Island, one of the things the guys love is like Broadway and, and musicals. And we, the, I were, you know, I was hanging out with some of the guys. We were just, you know, he was playing some songs from like Mean Girls, and uh, what was the other one? Uh, Legally Blonde. Like, and these are like movies that were basically turned into musicals. And I was just like, why? <laughs> also, I yeah. found out that Heather's was adapted as well, and I was just like why are you gonna mess with that like heather's yeah. is such uh it's like such classic cinema um so dark and like you can't really like i and i was just like how could you how dare you like take that and turn it into like this like musical where you're like singing and dancing and i don't know it just irked me so much um and then also the more the more modern things with television uh you know I'm like actually like secretly happy about this like Hollywood writer strike and actor strike. I'm like, good, go on strike, stay on strike forever. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> never come back. <laughs> you know, I'm a labor economist, and so I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, wait, now the point of a union is to essentially increase the wages and benefits of the workers, right? The workers who are members of the union to protect their rights. Yeah, right. That only happens if you one can argue that these workers can do something that other people can't. So they're skilled in a certain way, or they produce a quality of product in a way that nobody else can. And two, that only, the, you know, you can only improve the benefits by reducing the supply of the labor. So, you know, for example, I, uh, I, uh, the, the, a pilot's union, like the pilot's union has done this by uh, increasing the standards of what it takes to call yourself a pilot. Um, and thereby, by increasing the credentials necessary, they have also increased their wages because they shut out a lot of people from being able to call themselves uh, pilots. So how does this work 
with screenwriters considering I haven't seen a TV show or a movie that was well-written in like 10 years. Um, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you know, it's not, they're not churning out gold. Okay. They're not, they're not, they're not sending their best. And you got to wonder like, what do you think your leverage is here? Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious how this is going to end for them because some TV shows are just so terrible. Um, and like the writers make fun of their own bad writing in the show in a way that's trying to make it like so bad that it's good and it's just not working. It's, it's... guys, maybe just write better. <laughs> 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 like that sounds mean, but you know, it's an option. Well, there's just so much, I, there's so much garbage out there and it, uh, has become pretty apparent. Like they, um, the new Star Treks, for example, are like universally panned by fans. I haven't even bothered to watch Strange New Worlds or Discovery just because I'm so offended by <laughs> just what I've seen. You know, the little bit, that, the, the bits that I've seen, I'm just like, this is not Star Trek. Also, I did watch Picard and I watched all three seasons and I, I found it to be more like a Netflix you know, extended series, something like Stranger Things. It's like a long movie, basically, you know, you know, chopped up into chapters. Um, that's not Star Trek. Star Trek was essentially episodic. And Gene Roddenberry used to um, rail against the sort of like extended plot lines and, and drawing that shit out. Like he wanted each one to be like a self-contained thing. And that was like a big point of, of him and, and it went into the show. And if you look at Next Generation, Voyager, Deep Space Nine, they they did have those, you know, continued cliffhanger and sort of overarching plots. But each show was a contained experience, you know, let alone cliffhangers and, you know, season finales and season premieres. But generally speaking, they were, you know, very self-contained. And there was always sort of like a lesson uh, that generally had to do with about, you know, like family or your responsibility in society or what it meant to be a person. Um, and it was very, uh, they would encode these, these ideas in the story in a way that wasn't like bashing you over the head with, you know, social justice, politically correct bullshit, um, the way that the writers do today. The writers today, I feel like they, you know, in, in the past, they really appreciated their audience. They respected their intellect. They understood, you know, how to make these things subtle and palatable, you know, for, for your consideration. You know, you watch the original uh, or the next generation, and uh, there's a very famous episode where in the first season where Data, the android, it comes up, uh, you know, is he property or is he a person? Does he have rights? Hmm. And that idea, like it was, it was just such a really well put together uh, elaboration of those concepts and what it means to be human. And um, it, it's just something they don't do today. Now they, they hit you over the head with, you know, things should be this way or you're a bigot. And it's just like, this is just lazy. Like it's lazy writing. It's, it's cliche because everyone's doing it. And it drives me up a wall when they take, you know, a cherished property like Star Trek or Star Wars and, you know, they put some woman in charge 
and she's you know turning it into this like broadway musical version of what she thinks it should be like star trek uh i think it's strange new worlds just did a musical episode was one of their last episodes and i was just like you know joss whedon did that in the late 90s and buffy the vampire slayer once more with feeling and if you guys haven't watched buffy the vampire slayer out there from the 90s it's an amazing series uh joss whedon did an amazing job writing it and it has it has an ending and the ending is good um so i highly recommend that one um, i mean just to give you like an example of how how shows have gone downhill for exactly the reason that you said of just beating you over the head with the message instead of like subtly implying it or even having a conversation within the narrative about what you know the moral or whatever did you i'm sure you have i hope you have did you watch like the first few seasons of home improvement oh yeah it's so good Classic. and that show was all about like the differences between men and women yep like and the 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 later seasons were not so good but like the first the first four seasons i would say um it was like uh tim and jill would get into uh would get into arguments a lot because they both saw the same situation from just different perspectives and sometimes like tim was obviously in the wrong sometimes jill was obviously in the wrong but there was a lot where it was like kind of you know there was you could you could see it from both perspectives and then they'd have to go talk to wilson uh, to straighten their stuff out um like that was that was an, a sitcom that was on what abc or something it's like abc nbc cbs one of the big ones. yeah um like that that quality of writing would never happen today on a sitcom like i've seen i have i have seen a few episodes of like sitcoms from the last five years and i've always i've always thought they were horrible <laughs> absolutely horrible and i'm like where is the joke what is like you said what's the moral here because it, it just seems like oh wasn't this a quirky thing that happened in these characters lives today it's yeah. like okay but why do i care um and they want more money right exactly <laughs> like the one thing that a good story has to be compelling it has to hook you you have to be invested in the characters and the outcome of the situation that you've presented those characters in and if you can't do that or if your characters come across as you know obnoxious or uh you know pathetic that's not, it, it doesn't, doesn't hook the interest of the audience to really care what happens. You're like, well, what? Okay. So like, there's just some like wacky weirdo and, and why do I care? Like, that's the one thing that drives me up the wall. I just, uh, I just, just watched, um, the new guardians of the galaxy, guardians of the galaxy three. Um, and I found it very compelling. It was really good on tugging on the heartstrings. Yeah. Uh, very heavy themes of paternity, fraternity, family, um, you know, and, and how all of those things interact and how, you know, it's so basically you, you do anything for the people that you love, even if the love is more fraternal or paternal um, and not erotic, uh, which is not something that we're not really good at parsing in Western culture. It's, yeah. it, 
it doesn't seem to be a very good uh, grasp that there are these different kinds of love and that they're all very powerful um, and gravitational in a way, you know, like they, they attract you, they pull you um, towards towards people. And the, the way that they sort of laid that out in the movie, I thought was very good. And also they had really excellent action sequences. The music was amazing. Like I was very impressed, you know, for a Disney film, you know, for a, for a Marvel film. I haven't really been too into the Marvel things lately um, just because it's, again, it's cliche. You know, once you've seen, like, how many Marvel movies have we had right now? Like, yeah. we're, we're in the two dozens, three dozens somewhere. <laughs> like, so, yeah. Well, I mean, and, and the, the the thing about the Guardians of the Galaxy series is that they, they're just so creative, that that little trilogy of movies. They're, they're so creative. Um, like even, even in the, this third one, when they go to that space station that was like all organic material, <laughs> I thought that was like so, so clever creative. and so, so such an interesting take on like what a space station could be. Cause like anybody else who, you know, that was James Gunn who, who pretty sure he wrote it, but he directed that, that series. Anyone else at Disney who was writing, uh, the, a movie where they had to find a space station, it would just be like generic, like big metal thing and floating in space and james gunn was like no it's going to be organic material and so that's what's going to be be weird about it and then there's also the really fun uh the really funny moment and when security finds them when mantis like goes up to that one guy and she's just like violent rage and he's <laughs> like shooting everybody oh man yeah that was i really enjoyed that movie I, I liked um, I liked Mantis and uh, Drax. Drax's sort of arc, like you know, he he was just like this stupid fuck up, and you know, but it turns out like his stupid fucked upness is what led him to have a big enough heart to be able to you know like parent well or like just to handle large amounts of children, and then they end up freeing all the children. And I thought that was very symbolic too, the way that they're. You know, they had this, like, evil dude that had, like, a bunch of kids in cages and he was going to turn them into, like, you know, his perfect people or whatever. Mm. Um, it was very reminiscent of, like, Jeffrey Epstein, at least for me, because uh, that was one of Epstein's goal. He was trying to impregnate these intelligent young women so mm. that he could, like, father, like, a generation of, like, super people or whatever. Um, and that's similar to what you know that this guy uh what was his what was the, what was the guy's name i don't even remember his name the character the, the purple gravity control yeah character. i don't know the high I evolutionary or something it was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's so forgettable i mean he's just he's he's a little bit if there's a, a definitely if there's a problem with the movie he's just a little uh typical you know he's yeah you're, you have this like you know authoritarian dictator who basically who yells a lot who's going to create the perfect world you know by you know having to kill a bunch of people and name them you know it's just very like which it's so world. funny that you mentioned that because whenever people talk about the third guardians of the galaxy movie they almost never mention the villain they're always like oh it was so charming i loved it you know the main cast and their chemistry and blah 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 they like never mention the villain they're like Oh, yeah, I guess they were, like, trying to defeat a bad guy or something. I don't know. Right. Yeah, well, it, the story, I mean, the, the villain really is more just a foil for how the, to bring, you know, bringing people together to save Rocket, you know, after his injury or whatever. 
Like he's yeah. just he's just sort of there. And then, you know, he really comes into the floor more, I guess, in like the second half of the movie. It's pretty long. It's about two and a half hours, yeah. two hours, 20 minutes, something like that. Um, I had to watch it in two parts. I fell asleep. I was like, I got through the first hour and I was like, okay, this is, it was a perfect spot where I, it was like music was playing. They were in space. I was like, this is a good stopping point. <laughs> and, like, yeah. and I watched the rest of it later, but I, I definitely did enjoy it. And it had me, you know, a little bit in tears at the end, you know, it was very tuggy. They were good at tugging on the heartstrings. I was like, this is making me emotional. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because I thought the ending was probably the weakest part that, that to me, like the very ending, like the last five minutes, that felt like the most like formulaic, like, I don't know, let's just wrap this up and set up a TV show or something. Yeah. Because um, Manson was like just like, I need to go do what I want to do. <laughs> like randomly out of nowhere, like she never expressed these feelings ever in the movie. And then she should, oh, spoilers, guys. Uh, and then she's just like, bye. And it's very clear that they were trying to set up the possibility of a future TV show, probably on Disney Plus, and like Mantis, you know. Right, um, yeah. Uh, and then they off. made that, that one song. I, I don't like that song, actually. So, which and one? You could tell, by the way, in the editing that they're like, oh, we'll just pick a song later. We'll we'll do some market research and figure out what, what song we should play at the end. We'll see what the numbers say about that. Because the dancing didn't really seem to match the music that well. And they hit it enough with the cuts that you couldn't quite tell, but you you could tell the director was like, all right, I, I guess just like dance, everybody, just dance. And they're like, just like throw your hands up, yeah. <laughs> Now I'm gonna I go. I'm gonna go back and watch it again, and now I'm gonna pay extra special attention to that dance number at yeah. the end there. Okay. Another technical note that bothered me. There was uh, some scene closer to the end where the purple villain dude was um, <laughs> in like his, you know, generic command room of the spaceship or whatever, and. The blocking was fine. They did not establish the business well. So he was like yelling. First of all, it's all green screen. You know, it's all green screen. So he's just like yelling and pointing at the green screen. And you can tell the actor is just like, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm just standing here yelling. Like, guys, give me something to do. And the director's like, gotta be a green screen. Gotta be a green screen, dude. And he's like, all right, I guess I'll just stand here and yell awkwardly. Just try to get a closer uh, shot so it doesn't come across how, how weird this is. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's <laughs> a, the other weakness, I feel like, of all the... Like, I saw um, the new Ant-Man, mm. uh, which was very similar in that it had a kind of, like, forgettable villain who was just, like... And I think the... Uh, I think there was actually some controversy with that actor. I feel like he got in trouble for something, and now he won't be coming back. But um, again, it was just a lot of green screen, um, you know, and a lot of reliance on like quirky, you know, nonsense that just sort of like, it's like, isn't this a quirky thing? And it's just like, uh, you guys are just lazy. Like you're just you're yeah. lazy. So that's why I really don't care. You know, if they never come back, great. Um, there's a lot of independent stuff happening. I really want to see this new... Um, this movie sound of freedom i haven't haven't had an opportunity yet i saw that one how was it 
Uh, I enjoyed it. Again, technical note, blocking was fine. The business needed some work. Do you know what I'm talking about when I talk about blocking the business? No, you want to explain it. Okay, so uh, when it, in, in filmmaking, and I, I haven't been to film school. I just watched too many movies. But um, <laughs> Me there, too. There's, Me too. And I, they explain this on Red Letter Media, too. So go check okay. it out. But, yeah, so there are, there are two things that you, you need to keep in mind when you're filming a scene, right? It's blocking and business. The blocking is how you establish where everyone and everything important is in the physical space. Um, so movies that mess this up, you know, they'll like, they'll show a close-up reaction to a character and you'll, you'll be confused. You'll be like, wait, where is this person? I don't understand where in the scene this actor is. And it's just disorienting. Right. So blocking, make sure that is done really well. Steven Spielberg is like the master of blocking. Um, he's very, very good at it. Uh, and then there's business. So that is what the actors are doing and why they're doing it. So it would be really boring if, you know, there was a scene where two characters were having a conversation. It'd be really boring if they were just sitting in chairs talking the entire time. You need to give them some business. So, you know, maybe the conversation sort of like takes a turn in the middle. And at that point, you would want one of the characters to get up and walk to the other side of the room. Okay, but why is he walking to the other side of the room? Is he making a drink? Is he turning on some music? Like, what is he doing? Um, so the blocking and sound of freedom was good. I was never like confused or disoriented about like who was where. But there were, again, a couple scenes where people were just standing there giving their lines and you're like, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you standing here? And one thing I like to joke about is that the movie should be called Dramatic Lean-In because Jim Caviezel did the Dramatic Lean-In probably five times in the movie wow. where he was like sitting back and then he would just go. <laughs> <laughs> Which again, if you establish the business well, that could be a good punctuation Again, when a when a conversation takes a turn in the middle of a scene, but it wasn't done that way. It was just sort of like sprinkled randomly throughout, and it was like, uh, okay, guys, you gotta let let's think about this a little bit more. Not that well, I'm a filmmaker, but you know, I'm an armchair critic, and you know, that's what we do. That's like what the space is for. Like we're yeah. supposed to sit out here in armchair. That's like the whole point of the show. Is like we're gonna. <laughs> spew things that are going to make people upset because we don't like them or we have critique like deal with it bitch um you know i still want to see it i i think the subject matter is really important it's super topical um especially considering a lot of the migrants that are coming over the southern border are just basically getting shunted into human trafficking labor trafficking sex trafficking yeah. organ trafficking and it's all being sort of just like covered up you know put to the side ignored new york times will do a piece like once a year about it you know in some isolated you know context i think they did one about uh some like roofing like some kid who fell off a roof or whatever in florida and they did another one about kid they caught they caught a bunch of kids working overnight in like a chicken processing plant or a chicken farm somewhere and like a oh i think i heard about that one these were like the two pieces that the New York Times, the gray lady, the gold standard of journalistic integrity and, and investigative journalism. This was the two pieces they did and they just they published them. And then, you know, they were like, you know, a couple of pages you know, deep, not not a uh, front page story. 
and the story just basically is just like oh there it is and next whatever you know back to moving on every day like it's just so ridiculous i i can't you know and then this is like modern day slavery you know for all the all the talk the left gives about how much you know they, they want reparations for you know descendants of african-american slaves and how bad slavery was and racism and this that and the third they don't seem to be very concerned for the actual slavery, the modern day the, that's happening right now yeah. in this country under our noses. Um, they don't give no fucks about that. So Yeah, and then when you there are crazy people on Twitter who I've seen where regarding child sex trafficking, they're they're like, Well, you know, if sex work was legal, that wouldn't be happening. And I'm like, oh my what? God, what? What? what it's like uh yeah it would still be happening actually <laughs> yes yeah no it's ridiculous and it just blows my mind that there's not i guess it's because there's just so much happening all the time you know humans we have very limited bandwidth and how much just information and experience we can process in a 24-hour period and it makes it very hard, especially when you, you, you actually have to acknowledge and contemplate that there are children, women, uh, and young men being trafficked, forced into labor trafficking, forced into sex trafficking, and some of them actually being sacrificed and sliced up so that their organs can be peddled on the black market. Um, that really, if you acknowledge that and accept that as a reality, you know, you have it, it, it you, if you have a conscience, you have to do something about it. You can't just like, ignore that you're like oh that's an interesting tidbit you know like of trivia whatever and you can't you can't just accept it so i feel like that's why a lot of people don't want to hear it because then you know their conscience would prod them into you know doing something about it so we had tara lee rodas and um aaron stevenson on the show who are both two whistleblowers that talked about it and and they're 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 two of many there's so many people that are talking about this problem um and i would love to see you know, Hollywood maybe make a movie that could somehow explain it and do it, you know, do it, maybe do a better job of Sound of Freedom, you know, put, put all that big I budget. I still, I still, uh, I mean, to the extent that the movie can be enjoyed given the subject matter. Right. I, I mean, that's, I mean, I feel weird that's saying like, wow, that was really good. <laughs> right. It's like, is that was a really good movie? I mean, well, and that was kind of the, I, I did see a little, like the shades of that in Guardians 3 and when, you know, they, they had all those kids in cages, I was like, this is an interesting, this is interesting imagery in the current context. Yeah. Of course, all, all the kids were like these little like blondish, you know, ethnically indistinct. They were like blondish, gray, silver haired, uh, tan skin, like middling age children i guess they were probably from the ages of i would say i don't know what six to twelve all those kids at the end there yeah but it was very interesting it was a good movie i like that one uh and i really haven't i haven't seen much coming out lately that uh catches my interest uh granted i haven't paid much attention to the last month i've been so busy i haven't really been plugged into media at all is there anything good coming out that i should be interested in uh, I did see of? Oppenheimer, and that was really, really good. Uh, oh, sorry. that was with, uh, what's his name, right? Um, Killian Murphy. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was really good. Uh, I saw the new Ari Oster movie with um, Joaquin Phoenix. It's called Bo is Afraid. I really like that movie, 
not for everybody. It's it's not an adaptation. It's an original movie that he he wrote. Um, I really liked it. It's long. It's like three hours long. I don't know Ooh. why, <laughs> but I guess it was uh, this the production company A twenty four just being like, you know what, you made us so much money with Hereditary Midsummer, like do what you want. We'll, we'll let you do it. <laughs> so sounds um, like he needed a good editor. I think that movie was a flop. I, I don't think it earned back its budget at um at the box office, which is upsetting. But uh, also, just because of how weird the movie is, I, I kind of get it. I think it'll be okay on streaming. Can you give me give me a synopsis? What's the uh, yeah? What's the so um, Joaquin Phoenix plays a man named Bo who has uh, anxiety. And uh, he's trying to get home to see his mother. That's about it. And uh, just one enormous obstacle after the other. And you kind of the whole movie is sort of like from the pers- from his perspective with his anxiety. Um, and it's definitely a surreal horror comedy. Uh, like there are certain things in the movie that are very clearly, metaphorical because there's just no rational explanation for them um yeah i uh i who was it uh chris stuckman did a uh, a review of the movie and i agree with him when he said you know you should go watch it just because there's never going to be another movie like this um uh it's it's certainly unique from that perspective so and th- that was another thing like he he there was a, a this came out several years ago but uh, the director Gore Verbinski made a movie. Um, he made a horror film called A Cure for Wellness. Um, and I really enjoyed that movie, but it did not do well at the box office. It, it completely bombed. Critics gave it like mediocre reviews. Um, but then Chris Stuckman did a review on it and he said, you know, I really enjoyed this. And it's really frustrating that critics are always saying like come on hollywood give us more original content and then when somebody does make something original they just trash it they're like this sucked um not that original (laughs) (laughs) um so two movie recommendations bo is afraid and a cure for wellness nice very good very good yeah no i also saw that this barbie film was coming out and i thought that was again derivative um and i I saw the trailer and i was just like you know this reminds me a lot of the lego movie which or um also uh what's another movie um uh shoot it's blanking it's the one where he's like a video game character and he sort of like comes to awareness no no it's a free no free guy oh yeah i really liked free guy i liked it too yeah but again this this idea of like you know somebody in a simulated universe coming to awareness that they're in a simulated universe and like trying to you know branch out or interact with like the real world it, it it's just it, it's just getting on my nerves now. I'm like, you know, they they. I don't think that was Free Guy though. I, it's been a while since I saw it because I only I saw it in theaters and I, who knows how long ago it came out? Probably a couple of years now. I don't think he was trying to escape his reality. No, he wasn't. That was more. They were more like you know trying to prove that the, 
the architecture of the game that they were in belonged to the other people. And then she was suing and they were just trying to get the, the, the architecture back so they could revert it to its like natural state or whatever. Yeah. Um, but again, it had that, this, this idea of, you know, it's like very Tron, you know, where you have a real world and a digital world. Um, or like, you know, in the Lego movie, it's like the toy world and like the real world, these like parallel universes on top of each other. Um, it's just, I don't know. I, I saw them doing it with Barbie and I was like, okay, I get it. You know, you're going to put hot people in the movie. And, uh, but then I heard that it's got sort of an anti-feminist slant to it where, you know, she ultimately decides to live in the real world, which is like a world controlled by men. Um, and so I don't know, I haven't seen it. So, and I, I don't really like not super excited to see it. It's not like something I'm going to like rush out to, to see, but I just thought it was. An... Yeah. You know, I, I heard, um, some conservative commentators going back and forth about whether or not it's a good movie. And I think it was Michael Knowles who apparently really liked it and said just what you were saying. I'm like, oh, there's an anti-feminist slant to this. And why is it that all of Greta Gerwig's movies have this, have this anti-feminist slant? even though she's supposedly a feminist, like, I don't know, guys, is she a closet conservative? What's going on? And I, I'm like, I think you're reading too into it. it. Honestly, honestly, I think third wave feminism is so incoherent. I <laughs> don't even know how to win people over to it without owning themselves. Right. That's what I think it is. Um, I, I did really like Lady Bird. Greta Gerwig did Lady Bird. I really liked that movie. Um, I don't know why, but the scene where they're... Have you seen it? I feel like I have, like, years ago. Yeah. There was a scene, because they're, like, uh, Catholic school school kids. There was a scene where uh, they're, like, chilling. They're, they cut class, and they're, like, eating the, uh, the Eucharistic... Uh, oh, well, I remember papers. this movie. Yes. And someone's like, you're not supposed to be eating those. And I'm like, they're not consecrated. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, that movie was definitely, like, full of awkward comedy. Yeah. Yeah, I like that one, too. That was, like, 20, 2017, Eight. yeah, coming-of-age comedy. Yeah. Yeah, that was a funny one. Um, but I also, I was just, like, looking at, like, you know, a list of all the, you know, hotly anticipated films for the year. And it's like Barbie, uh, Oppenheimer's on there, Haunted Mansion, which I'm pretty sure is derivative. Disney's yeah, first they made that. they already made a Haunted Mansion with Eddie Murphy in like 2003. Right, um, and then there's another there's a Meg sequel. The Meg's coming back. The Giant oh, Shark. Oh yeah, awesome. There's also a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles animated thing. Um, there's Blue Beetle, which is another. It's a DC adaptation. Okay. Um, Gran Turismo, which is a video game adaptation. Equalizer 3, which is Denzel Washington, Dakota Fanning. You know, they they those two go back forever. Um, the, the, the Nun 2. Like, all these movies are uh, not, like, original properties. There's one here that's called the, the Creator. This might be an actual original film. From writer-director Gareth Edwards, an epic sci-fi action thriller set amidst a future war between the human race and the forces of artificial intelligence. Ooh. Oh, I saw a trailer for that. Okay. Yeah, they have a trailer here. Um, I haven't seen or heard of it, but maybe it's maybe it's a somewhat original screenplay. We'll see. I did just finish reading 
the second book in the Hyperion Cantos from Dan Simons or Simmons. I'm not sure you're pronouncing okay. it. And holy shit, is it amazing. Like, um, I think he wrote these books in like the early 80s or the 80s. And um, huge award winners, really deep content. The first book is kind of a slog because the first two books really are the first book. Um, it's, it's a very complicated, layered story with multiple characters. Um, and it deals with very heady concepts like the Abrahamic sacrifice of his son and, you know, the choice to, uh, to put faith in God to stop the blade and, and all this shit. And then it also gets into AI and the nature of AI and how humanity in the future sort of becomes uh, not a slave to it uh, overtly, but sort of covertly we become uh, addicted to the things that AI provides. And in, in this particular story, they have these portals called Farcasters, which are controlled and regulated by the artificial intelligence um, organization. It's called the Core, And they let people, that lets you basically instantaneously travel from one point in the galaxy to another just by stepping through a portal. So humanity spread out over hundreds of planets across the galaxy, and they're all connected by these Farcaster portals. And there's this one planet uh, called Hyperion where, like, the rules don't apply. The AI can't predict anything that has to do with Hyperion very well, whereas otherwise the AI is, like, 99.98% accurate in predicting the future. Um, and it's, it's, it's very heady concepts. The characters are really good. Um, and there's excellent action. And the second book, really, it, you don't really get introduced to the protagonist uh, until the second book. And the protagonist is actually John Keats, like the legendary poet. <laughs> the, the author resurrects him as a cybrid, which is basically a uh, AI-human... Um, sort of combination. It, it, the hardware is all human, but it's like a genetically engineered human that also has implants so that it can interact with like the techno core. Or it can go sort of cybernetic and it ha he has like a digital persona. So basically he survives after death and it's very, it's very heady, very interesting stuff. Um, and uh, like, it, it's funny because I, I read The Expanse prior to this. And this idea of having like portals connect far dis far uh, systems in space was uh, like, I thought it was very, I was like, oh, this is such an original concept. And then I read this book and I'm like, oh, it's been, this was written like, you know, decades before, like they probably read this. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I really love the story and I can't recommend it enough. My friend Juana turned me on to it. And uh, I can't wait to go. I have to get the third. There's, I think, four books total. But they're talking about turning it into a movie or a Netflix or an Amazon Prime. And I'm just like, please don't. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> just leave it. <laughs> because it's so amazing as it is. And it's, it's so uh, layered. And the story is so dense. This is the thing. When you're adapting a book or uh, a novel into a movie or a screenplay, you lose a lot of the, the, the depth of the story yeah. because by the nature of the medium, you can only present so much at a time. Whereas in a novel, you can layer these things, you can build them up, you can hyperlink them through the text. And uh, it really lets you build out a universe 
um, at your own pace because you read the thing at however fast you, you can read the thing. Um, whereas the story, you're sort of, you know, for anywhere between 90 minutes and, you know, three hours now, you're, you're, you watch what is presented on the screen and it's a much more sort of like fed to you experience. And, and because of that, you can only, there's only so much information you can absorb and you lose a lot of the texture and uh, backstory. This is one of the things I noticed when I, I watched. So I first watched The Expanse and then I started reading the books and then I went back to watching um, and I noticed where they cut things because the story would do these weird little inconsistencies that don't really line up with the nature of the characters or the choices they would make. And it's not something you would notice unless you read the books and you were yeah. invested in the characters and you were really, you know, you like you knew the characters. And then you, when you watch the show, you're like, that's inconsistent. <laughs> um, but that's, you know, that's why yeah. it, I feel like adaptation, while it can be done well, you know, there, there is, it, it does happen well. You know, I think the Lord of the Rings movies were an amazing adaptation of the story. It lost very minimal uh, of the depth of the texture um, and retained a lot of, I would say probably upwards of 90 to 95% of the original content and, and made it, you know, it's, it, it felt like you were, you know, watching the books on screen. Yeah. Um, whereas some of these ones are just like, I feel like they just uh, try to put on a show like Ready Player One, for example, very flashy. Um, the story itself, if you read the book, is also just kind of very fantasy driven. It's not uh, what I would consider like challenging fiction where like the character goes through this like loss or this growth period you know a lot of coming of age tales the character suffers tremendously um and that suffering leads the character to a realization or to a choice or to a path that they wouldn't have otherwise had and that's what makes the story interesting that's why you're invested that's what makes it compelling and makes you want to find out what happens um whereas ready player one it just sort of seemed like this like uh pop culture, nostalgia, um, celebration almost of, uh, I would call it masturbatory fantasy wish fulfillment. You know, the kid yeah. basically is like, uh, he plays video games, right? And his playing of video games ends up turning him into the most richest man possible with control of the digital universe and everyone's happy. Hey kids, it could happen to you. Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. This is, it just feels so, uh, I don't know, just it. It's not true to life. You know, life is suffering. Life is hard. Um, you know, life, if, if you want a positive outcome, you have to aim at it again and again and again and again and continue to take shots and continue to improve your aim. Um, and that's, that's the only way to really get there. You can't just like, you know, play video games in your entire life and expect one day that like it's going to pay off, you know. Now that does work out for some people, you know, it, like there are a few people that can turn playing video games into, you know, uh, a source of income, but it's not, I don't know, for, for the long, for the long haul to me, that doesn't seem like the, well, the thing is people, the people who can do that, it's not because they're really good at playing video games. That might be part of it. It's also because they have a personality and they know how to interact with their audience like on streaming or something while they're playing the game. So if you're if you just sit there and you play the video game and you don't like talk to the people who are watching you, 
then you're probably not going to do well. Like the people who have successful streaming uh, platforms who have like serious income from it have personalities, which is something that I think uh, a lot of wannabe gamers forget about. Um. <laughs> well, it's also something that's very hard for young people to have a personality because they don't have a lot of experience to develop yeah. one. Like you ha or, you know, if you're very gifted and you had amazing parents, like, yes, you'll get that. But, um, you know, that's usually something that you kind of build in your 20s and it really doesn't fully sort of crystallize until your early 30s even. Yeah. Uh, at least that's how it was for me. Like, I had no idea who I was until my early to mid 30s, actually. So it just took a while to kind of figure that shit out. And in today's culture, we sort of encourage that that infantilization of, uh, of the individual, especially young men. They don't want, uh, you know, they want a lot of like strong-willed, powerful, confident young men coming into the scene who might disrupt the status quo. That's like the uh, the danger. <laughs> but we'll see yeah. what happens with Hollywood. I, I, like, frankly, they can just keep, you know, keep on strike. I have no problem with them just, you know, just taking off as like, long as they need. When you when you watch a movie or a TV show, typically, how old? is it nowadays like so the last thing that i was watching uh was uh well i was watching the other night the uh, x-men and spider-man cartoons from the 90s on disney plus so that's old <laughs> yeah and then those stories are actually derivatives of comic books that were written in the 50s and 60s and 70s too i was watching uh the phoenix saga there's a five uh part uh, X-Men cartoon in the third season that is just really good story. Like it's the story of, you know, the X-Men go into space because Professor Xavier gets this like message from this like alien woman and she needs help. And she's trying to, to protect this thing called the M-Cron crystal from her brother to Shen, who is the leader of the Shi'ar, the Shi'ar empire. It's this like big space empire, whatever. And he has come to power as ruler and he wants the crystal and the crystal has the power to basically uh, recreate the universe. So it can, it'll pull the entire galaxy into itself and then all that matter will be realigned within the crystal. And then whoever, you know, opened it basically becomes God of the crystal world. Okay. And so, and then the Phoenix is the entity that is chosen. She's like a protective uh, fire force. And she takes over Jean Grey in, as the X-Men are trying to uh, interact with um, these aliens. And uh, she, they go back and forth, and then they end up getting sucked into the crystal, and they have to fight the guy. And she ends up having to sacrifice herself. And it's just, like, very compelling story. And, it, you know, it reminds me of um, Final Fantasy VII when um, Eris is killed. Uh, spoiler alert if you haven't played that game. But uh, this idea of sacrifice, uh, especially of like female, um, female characters and how they are generally like very uh, pure, defensive, caring, um, and their, their willingness to make the ultimate sacrifice, I find it very, uh, just a compelling plot point. And it, it 
you know, echoes, it resonates with motherhood, you know, because mm-hmm. motherhood is very, you know, sacrificing, you know, it's a basically an 18 year commitment you make to, to raise that child. And it also used to be very uh, potentially risky to the life of the mother, you know, before we had modern medicine and the ability to combat infections and things and perform emergency surgeries. Yeah. Um, so all these, all these things, these are very heady, very human themes that I feel like are just sort of tossed aside now in favor of the quirky, funny, goofy, sexy uh, bullshit, you know, du jour, whatever's, you know, it's like whatever's trendy in the moment is what they cough up in, in the screenplays. Like, did you see um, the, the Scooby-Doo series that was with like Velma? Velma? No, I didn't see it, but I saw those uh, those all enough. Players. I just I watched a couple of clips and there was one point where it was it was again it was like you were saying earlier they were obviously like aware of their style choices and they were like trying to like break the fourth wall a little bit and go meta and it was just coming across as like arrogant and overconfident and bad and I saw that clip going around on Twitter yeah uh, it's just like wall break or you know self-aware writing i'm not like a master writer but you know this is just my opinion uh you gotta you have to be really careful with how you do it or it's gonna come across as arrogance or like you're admitting your own bullshit instead of just writing better it's like in um jurassic world when they were like verizon wireless presents the <laughs> Uh, you know, far, uh, the the State Farm Insurance Indominus Rex. And then they were like, oh, God, like, isn't it so ridiculous how we have to add these companies as sponsors to the name? It's like, or you could not do that. You could not go for the, you know, cheap ad placement and just skip that little joke and move on, especially because I don't think it was referenced again in the entire movie. And that movie made so much money at the box office. You did not need the ad placement right Right. there. Right. Right. Like you're really hurting that bad. You need ad rev. Come on. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, if you're going to be self-aware, you got to be really careful. It's going to come across the wrong way to the audience. Um, Also, I think it should be brief. I think it should be really brief. Like, um, you were just giving a quick glance to the camera and then like, that's it. Um, sort of like, uh, I don't know if you ever watched the show Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide. Nope. I'm probably a little too old, but that was about, um, that was on when I was a kid and I, I love that show, um, because the writing was so good, but it was, it was a show on Nickelodeon about, uh, a kid, this kid named Ned Bigby. He was in middle school and he was, he had a, a guide, a guide to survive school. And so every episode there was a different theme and he was giving tips and everything. The thing is every episode, it's kind of like, um, the format was kind of like SpongeBob where it, there was a 30 minute block, but there were two 11 minute episodes, um, with an ad break in the middle. Okay. So these episodes moved super fast, which meant the writing had to be like really, really tight. And, um, there was one episode where they did like a very quick fourth wall break 
and it was it was the funniest thing i need to go find it um but it, it was so funny because they were just having their normal conversation and then everyone just looks at the camera and then looks back at each other <laughs> it's like if you you it's got to be really brief you can't dwell on it because otherwise it's it's just going to come off as the wrong way it's like if you've seen uh annie hall no. where um Woody Harrelson is like in line and he's listening to some guy, some insufferable guy just go on about like, oh, you know, there's this, I'm a professor and there's this one writer whose work I have to cover and it's so awful and I hate it, but I have to do it. And then Woody Harrelson is like, well, actually I have that writer right here. I like, he's with me to come see this movie. And he's like, you know nothing of my work. I have no idea how you ever came to be a professor. And then Woody Harrelson looks right at the camera and he's like, wouldn't it be great if life were actually like this? <laughs> it's gotta be really quick. Um, yeah. When you, when you just know that, oh, that's a quick way to wrap up a joke or to wrap up a scene, but you don't understand why, it's, it's just gonna come off the wrong way. Yeah, the, uh, the only time I think I've seen it done well long form was in Deadpool. Um, yes. That that movie, that writing is very, I don't know, it's, it's, it's unique. You know, it's not your typical hero film, although it, it is in, in many ways very similar, uh, a lot darker, a lot more bloody, um, and a lot more comedic, I would say. They focus more heavily on the comedy. Um, but it, he does a lot of fourth wall breaks and I, I thought they were good. I liked the first two films. Um, I think Ryan, uh, what's his last name? Ryan, shoot, I'm blanking on that guy's name. Ryan Reynolds. Reynolds. Yeah. Um, he's fun. I feel like he was basically like made for that role. Yeah. Um, cause especially if you watch some of his older movies, like, uh, waiting, um, uh, some of his other stuff, very similar vibe. Just friends, I remember that one. <laughs> yeah, he's 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 a, he's a great. Uh, that's one thing about like actors like him. Like he sort of like almost plays himself um, in like every movie that he's in. Even in like Free Guy, he had very similar sort of. I don't know. Nature. I thought Free Guy was the first movie I have seen where Ryan Reynolds was doing something different and there were still pieces of his actual personality in there but yeah. like i thought this sounds kind of weird i thought he played a computer program very well of just like that very logical thinking of like well, i like this and i always do this and because that's just what i like and what i always do yeah. and um like anyone who's ever done any sort of coding uh knows that uh kind of understands how computers work and how how programs think uh, to the extent to which they, they can think and how it's just like very step-by-step -step logical. Um, and so I thought, I thought he did that really well. I, at the time I was saying like, uh, I thought he should have been nominated for best actor for that movie because it was like, when was the last time you saw a performance like that? Like never. And he was so convincing in that role. Very I convincing. Very and, convincing. um, and who are, who are the best actor nominees for that year? Probably like you forget. Uh, I'm going to look it up right now, actually. Yeah, no, I have no idea. But the, the music in that movie, also excellent. The action sequences, excellent. Um, they have a good, the, the pacing is good. You know, it doesn't really drag. 
Um, I thought the uh, the love story between the two characters in the real world and how you know his character was almost like a proxy for the the guy who you know wrote the code for him. Like yeah. I, I I thought it was really cute. It was really well done, and um, you know a, a, an interesting twist on that old idea of love is right in front of you you know your that your your best friend is like you know actually the person that you're you know you're meant to be with or whatever um i liked it i thought it was i thought it was really well done um and then he did that other one that uh where he was like traveling back in time and like ended up meeting himself or like using it, like having his oh, kids. Um, Adam project, the Adam. Yeah, project. that one. That one I thought was it was forgettable. I'm like, this is a, an interesting, an interesting film, but there's there was nothing there that sort of caught me. You know, I feel like he was going for almost like a, or the director was going for like that an ET kind of vibe, like that '80s film kind of vibe, but wasn't able to capture it and ended up relying too much on flashy special effects and, you know, time travel plot devices, um, which, you know, again, time travel, it's, it's getting cliche. Like it's, yeah. I, you know, it's, it's, just, it's been done so much since back to the future, which really sort of established the genre and this idea of, you know, a linear timeline where, you know, there's, there's one timeline. And if you go back and change something, then the future changes. Um, that might not actually be how the nature of time works. We don't really know. Yeah. Uh, but that idea really got planted with Back to the Future, and you can see how it carried forward and impacted entertainment when it came to time travel uh, in the in the sci-fi genre. It really did sort of leave that impact. Um, and I kind of liked how in the Avengers movie they sort of broke away from that a little bit. And they're like, well, actually, maybe it's more like multiverse style where there's multiple branching universe and parallel pasts and parallel futures and parallel presence. And um, that, I think, is probably a more uh, realistic view. But I'm uh, looking at the best actor nominations. Um, yeah, what from, were they? From that year. Okay. So some of these are pretty solid, I'll say. Benedict Cumberbatch for The Power of the Dog. Never saw that. That was an amazing movie. I will I say. I do like Cumberbatch. I'm a Cumberbatch fan. Yeah, so I stand that. Um, Denzel Washington for Tragedy of Macbeth. Haven't seen it. Heard it was really great. I'll, I'll stand that because I like me some Shakespeare. Denzel is also amazing. Um, Javier Bardem for Being the Ricardos. I saw that movie. I thought his performance was fine, but I didn't really understand like what was so unique about I don't I don't understand this nomination what was so great about it I've seen none he, of these movies seemed like he was playing himself honestly um, <laughs> he's a great Andrew, actor though Andrew Gar yes yes Andrew Garfield for tick tick boom did anyone see that movie I didn't I mean I love Andrew Garfield too but I haven't seen that movie either Lin-Manuel Miranda needs to stop yes I agree somebody needs to go back in time and stop him before uh Hamilton. Anything? Okay. <laughs> have you have I shared with you my hot take on Lin Manuel Miranda? No, please do, because I can't stand him. Okay, here's Lin Manuel Miranda's work summed up in a sentence. Black people talking and talking and acting like white people, so white people can brag about being entertained by black people. <laughs>
That is every Lin Manuel Miranda musical. Kind of accurate. Kind of accurate. Yeah. Like how many how many white people were like, oh my god, Hamilton is so great. I love Hamilton. It's the greatest thing. It's so awesome. Right. And it's like you're just bragging about how you're entertained by black people. That's all you're doing. And by the way. I listen. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try Hamilton. I'm gonna listen to this. You're gonna give it. You're, you're gonna give it your open mind. Well, I, I, yeah, yeah, I did because I, I had heard the one song, the, the song by, sung by the white guy, um, that "You'll Be Back." I really like "You'll Be Back," and so I was like, let me listen to this whole thing. And I listened to the first song, and I was like, okay, that's that's decent. All right, all right. And then I listened to the second song and I was like, nope, I'm out. This is, this is so <laughs> stupid. This is so, du- people like this. People think this is good. This, what a fucking Pulitzer, what? Yeah, that's what, okay. which I mean, that's. So okay. Andrew Garfield, he could go make room for, um, for uh, Ryan Reynolds. And then this was the year that Will Smith won for King Richard. Another movie I didn't And then see. on this Wikipedia page, there is a subgenre or subsection called Will Smith Chris Rock Slapping Incident. <laughs> which you gotta love the framing. It's like it's like when um Joe Biden's dog kept biting people, and they were like, <laughs> the dog was involved in a biting incident. <laughs> and you're like did somebody bite the dog (laughs) like or is this you know it's funny because in journalism they're like this is a dog bites man story it's that means it's not really a story because it's not interesting it's it's typical and then there's a man bites dog story which is like whoa that's weird what's going on there and i'm like this is literally a dog bites man story and you can't even say that you're like there was a biting incident (laughs) okay all right so that was that was that year. That was the slap was. That was, that was that year. Yeah, twenty twenty one. Yeah, so Free Guy came out in twenty twenty one. So these were the Oscars held in early twenty twenty two. Wow, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. No, I um, it's it's just so funny the the slapping incident, the the whole like cuck joke, and uh, you know it's like it's just so weird to me that these people are like in an open relationship and bragging about it on their podcast. And it just, I don't know. I, I just, I feel like, you know, it makes a mockery of the institution of marriage, which is a uh, very unpopular opinion that I have that we've discussed before. Well, you know, one thing I like to, to say, maybe I'll tweet this cause I feel like this is a good tweet. Ooh, if it has to be said, it's probably not true. So when there are when there are celebrities in open relationships and they're talking about how great it is and how happy they are and how fulfilled they are, <laughs> no, the same way when there is a celebrity who makes part of their brand being kind and being accepting and being being just a kind person to everybody regardless of you know anything, that celebrity is one hundred percent of the time a horrible person. We have seen this with Ellen DeGeneres. We saw this with Lizzo. Uh, who else did we see? That? Uh, Chrissy Teigen, uh, the Obamas. Uh, we have seen this time and time again. And again, if it has to be said, it's probably not true. If yeah. you constantly feel the need to go around and say, I am a really kind person and I want 
to be known for how kind I am to other people. It's because you're a terrible person. It's because you're constantly bullying people. You're constantly berating people. And so you need to have a public image that's the complete opposite because God forbid anyone finds out, right? Yeah, it's the uh, the trademark of that, uh, the cluster B personality disorder. You got that, that public face, that private face. And you really don't know until you talk to people who are in very close proximity with the individual for long periods of time. Like those three performers uh, that are suing Lizzo, you know, it's it's funny because I've heard a lot of different takes on this situation. Um, okay, say yours, and then I'm going to say what I think. Well, no, so I've heard. So first of all, I think Lizzo's you know a total fraud. Like I, she's obviously just you know in it for the fame and the money and whatever. Um, and it would not surprise me at all if what these girls are alleging is true, and what they're alleging is like, you know, they said basically sexual, racial, and religious harassment. Um, their dance, one of the dance, uh, captains or whatever was apparently like proselytizing, you know, with her Christianity on one hand, but also simultaneously, uh, engaging the girls in conversations about their virginity, about their sexual fantasies, um, this kind of stuff. And then they went on a trip to Amsterdam. <laughs> they took the girls to a strip club <laughs> and the girls were, uh, encouraged to catch dildos that were being projected out of the vaginas, of the performers one, and two were encouraged to eat bananas mm -hmm. that were being presented. Now, for the who among us too. can say that he's never <laughs> eaten a banana out of a sex worker's hole? Be honest, guys. I, I, I can say that. <laughs> I haven't done that one. Definitely haven't done that one. Um, um, no. So my take on this is, I think Lizzo was weight shaming them. I don't think I don't think they're making that up. Here's why. Oh yeah, though. that was that too. Like there was the other thing is she said that they they she she was concerned that one of the dancers had gained like a little weight and. Yeah. Then they made her have like an emergency 12 hour audition the next day. But I, I also spoke with somebody who said, you know, emergency 12 hour auditions the next day is sort of the standard in the business. And girls get cut all the time because they're easily replaced. Yeah. And again, that's sort of the nature of being a backup dancer for a major, a major star. Yeah. My take on the weight shaming. And again, just because of the brand, I think this is, this is, that's why I think this. Body positivist Lizzo. I think Lizzo wanted to be the biggest person on stage. I think she wanted to be the biggest woman on stage. And so when she's, she's like, I want big backup dancers, but not too big. You don't <laughs> come for the queen, right? You, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm the biggest. You're fat. <laughs> But you stay back there. You're a backup dancer. If right, you're, right, if you're right. bigger than me or you're you know close to the same size as me, people are going to be looking at you and wondering who you are. So no, you're you're skinnier than you're big, but you're skinnier than me. I'm the biggest on stage because I'm the star. I think that's what was going on. That is, I would I would assign that a high probability of being accurate for sure. That would make sense. Because I saw pictures, like when the story broke, I saw pictures of the backup dancers, and I was like, they're all big, but they're not quite as big as Lizzo. <laughs> so, although Lizzo so is beautiful, fine. obviously. Oh, so beautiful, so stunning, so brave. <laughs> Remember when she went on a diet a few years ago and her fans bullied her? 
Uh, no, I don't. But then yeah, again, she I went on a diet and she was like, I felt good. My skin cleared up. I had energy and I lost some weight. And then her fans were like, how dare you, you know, body positivity, blah, blah. Traitor! And that's when I realized like Lizzo has created a monster out of her fans that she can't control. And until she has the nerve to stand up to her fans and say, you know what? I don't care what you have to say. Like, I love my job and I'm fine with being bigger, but I have to make sure I'm healthy enough to keep doing this for as long as I want. Until she has the nerve to do that, she's a prisoner in her own body because of her fans. So it's like, you know, she is quite literally sacrificing her own health, her own life for the fame, for the money. And, you know, as we've seen with Madonna, you know, some of the, the celebrities, once they get a taste of it, it's almost like they get addicted to the fame, the attention. It's, it's like a drug, excuse me, a drug unlike any other. And, you know, Madonna, she got that, that plastic surgery and then suddenly she's got some sort of infection, has to, you know, yeah. she's hospitalized, IV antibiotics, like she had to cancel her tour. Like, honey, maybe it's time you just like let yourself age gracefully and naturally and stop trying to hold on to this, you know, idealized 20 something pop diva version of yourself that no longer exists. Like, yeah, it's like I'm not a Madonna fan. I don't know if I could name three of her songs, but um, if she wanted to keep doing tours and like she wanted to perform as long as as long as she wants and i understand like I've, I've heard performers say this like i love performing it's the greatest thing you know there's just so much energy and i love it if she wants to keep doing that like you need to be healthy and when you get to a certain age that means that you do need to change your performance to something that is sustainable i don't think there's anything wrong with madonna saying like okay guys not going to be doing as much dancing and running around on stages I have in years past. I'm getting up there. Like, there's going to be more sitting, but, like, I'm still going to be performing. I'm still going to be singing for you guys. Like, I don't think anybody would really object to that. But it's it's the need to, like, stay young. It's like they just can't accept the fact that they're getting older. Yeah. Right? It's it's it, And you see the same thing in a lot of gay men. It's this sort of, like... You know, with, with men, it's more of this idea of the puer eternus, the eternal boy, um, the adult man-child. And there's a heterosexual version of, of the same thing. But this idea of sort of holding on to youth and, you know, like just this, this resistance to growing up, to responsibility, to more mature uh, behaviors, um, it, it's just, it, it seems kind of toxic. And when you see the people that embody that, that attitude, they don't turn out so great. I mean, yeah. or maybe they do. I don't know. Uh, well, maybe Madonna so is because, exactly you know, where she wants to be. They say that 30 is gay 80, you know, and that's like, oh, it's gay 80. But when you go on Twitter, like the, the really hoey gay accounts of men who are like, still like out at the clubs and everything and like they're shirtless and they're trying to like keep a good physique so they can be shirtless and go to the clubs all the time those guys are always in like their late 30s they're always like 36 38 some of them in their early 40s and it's like okay so if 30 is gay 80 then like what does that make you you're dead already 
Um, and it's like, you know, you got to grow up at some point. Like, do you really want to be at the club when you're 50? Is that, is that a thing you want to do? Um, yeah, I, so I guess some people are. I guess some out, people want to do that. Uh, <laughs> all right. Out here on the island, the Friday night underwear party is the scene. Yeah. It's uh, over at a, a club called the Ice Palace, and uh, I have a couple of friends that work it. And it's it's the big to-do. Like, we, the, the guys come out to the island for the weekend. You know, they go to the Friday night underwear party, and they meet their weekend boyfriend, and it's like... It's like a whole thing out there. Um, I can't bring myself to go because phone? so a lot of times they have like fanny packs or like um, like arm wallets or okay. leg wallets that like strap on. Okay. Um, and then they run around in like sneakers or sandals with like a jock strap or like a, a little mankini bathing suit style thing. I asked the guys, I was like, could I wear boxers to the underwear party? And they were like, I think so. Like, you know, their underwear and clava is like, and one guy was like, oh, I see guys in boxers all the time. Okay. So maybe I'll probably have to go scope it out before the end of the season just to see what it's about. Um, I'm pretty sure I have a good idea because I've, I've been to sort of similar things in the past. No. Um, but it just, it just tickles me that that's... There is, like, and a lot of the guys are, you know, in their late 30s to uh, early 50s. And, you know, it's it's a lot of, and also a lot of the guys out here are coupled um, and in open relationships or they're married and they're not, you know, monogamous. Um, it's it's funny because I, I re-downloaded Grindr because I am recently single. Uh, well, not recently, but like newly single-ish. And uh, I was just like looking through and all, so many of the dudes are in relationships, are in open relationships, they're married, they're partnered. And I was just like, I was just like scrolling through profiles, like just looking at that one trait. And literally it's like more than half of them are <laughs> like all in really, I'm like, why are you on here? Like, I just don't, I, I don't get it. Like when I'm in a relationship, generally I'm, I'm, I, I'm not. I'm exclusive. I'm not looking for something else because like the whole point is to find that person that you can be exclusive with. At least that's how it is for me. You know, I guess for other yeah. people it's different. Um, I just don't understand the idea of an open relationship because it's like, well, isn't that just friends with benefits? So like you're just changing the name but it's the same thing. So I think a lot of it also has to do with the nature of male, uh, male, male relationships versus male, female romantic relationships. Oh yeah, for sure. Like we have a different attachment style. Um, and I do think, especially in, in gay, <clears throat> in gay relationships, we confuse romantic or erotic love, romantic, erotic, uh, fraternal and paternal love. We, we get those all sort of mixed up. Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, uh, people hate that I say it, but a lot of gay guys have, you know, traumas. They've got, yeah. uh, you know, interesting backstories that play into that confusion. Um, and I myself have mistaken, you know, fraternal, you know, a fraternal love or a paternal love for romantic or erotic love um, in past relationships. So yeah. it's, it's an interesting thing to observe. Um, and I forgot how we got onto the subject. <laughs> no, but while we're here, you know, that's... Oh, holding I'm, on to I'm, immaturity. 
I was talking with another another friend about this. Uh, he's he's not gay, but I was talking with another friend about this just the other day about, you know, uh, specifically we we're talking about marriage and and the uh, just the difference of the in nature of the relationship between spouses versus like friends. And I said, yeah, you know, um, I if I was like hanging out with one of my bros, you know, I have a few. Um, if I was hanging out with one of my bros and, uh, then out of nowhere, he like start, like we were watching a movie and then out of nowhere, he just started like cuddling with me on the couch. I'd be like, Whoa, like, what are you <laughs> doing? Because yeah, there is this fraternal love, but that is not a romantic love at all. And you know, I know they like to say that, like, oh, guys, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, if you can stick it in, like, it's fine. It's like, no, not not at all. Like, one of the most important things that you need to be able to do, everybody, men, women, everybody, figure out those different types of love and, you know, figure out when you're feeling which. Um, and don't don't conflate them. Don't cross the wires because, like I said, yeah, if, if one of my bros started, like, getting started getting fresh i'd be like what what are you doing this is that's not what i thought this was like um and that's not to say that we don't have like deep relationships we've certainly had like heart to hearts and and you know, open very open honest conversations with each other about deep topics but that doesn't mean that i feel any sort of romantic you know attraction to them um even if like physically they might be attractive it's like yeah but i I just don't feel that um so yeah and that's well that, that's kind of one of the points of dating right is to sort of like figure out if you have that level of compatibility you know if there's something interesting there that you guys want to pursue but now it's just like that's all sort of gotten i don't know like replaced with apps and like yeah. matching on the apps and then like i guess like you can go on a date if you you know if you match on the apps but I don't know. I just, I find it all very fascinating and kind of ridiculous. And this is probably why I will remain single for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think we did a pretty good roundabout. You know, we, we got to talk about your book. We got to talk about yeah. Storycraft. We talked about movies. What's your favorite movie of all time, by the way, while we're on the subject? Oh, geez. Oh, don't do this to me. <laughs> um... <sighs> I give you mine. It's uh, Aliens, nineteen eighty four, Sigourney Weaver, the second one in the uh, trilogy. Okay, um, I love Alien, the first an one. original screenplay. Yes, oh, the second one, I guess, is technically um, a derivative of the first. But you know, uh, I don't know. I can name a few. All right, um, my my favorite director who's currently alive is Alfonso Cuarón. And I really loved his movie, Gravity. Um, I know some people think it's just Sandra Bullock floating in space. It's not just Sandra Bullock floating in space. Um, that is a movie about uh, the presence of God in a very science-centered world. Um, love that movie. Um, my favorite director of all time is Billy Wilder. And my favorite movie of his is Sunset Boulevard. I've seen that probably four or five times now. Uh, so such a good movie. Um, it's about a screenwriter who 
winds up accidentally um, uh, at the, he's down on his luck. He winds up accidentally um, at the, the mansion of an old silent film star. And she wants to m make a comeback to, to movie making. And so he's gonna try to help her uh, while also um, essentially uh, in some sense whoring himself out because he's behind on his rent and his car payments. And so he's living in her house rent free uh, while working on the script for her comeback movie. Um, I also really like uh, the movie, um, The Way, Way Back. That was directed by this, that's from the same studio that did Little Miss Sunshine. So um, Sunset Boulevard was 1950. Mm-hmm. The Way, Way Back. Way, Way Back, I believe that was 2013. 2013, yeah. yeah. Uh, that was the first movie I saw where Steve Carell played a, the bad guy. And he did a really good job because I was like, oh, Steve Carell's in this. I was expecting it to be like, you know, Evan Almighty or something. And then I was like, oh, he's he's an, an asshole in this movie. He, does, he did it really well. I mean, he's a very good actor. Um, he is a good actor. He's yeah. got range. He does. Um, yeah, so there are, those are a few. Oh, and then I also really, really like the movie Nocturnal Animals with... Um, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Amy Adams. Directed, directed by Tom Ford, the Tom fashion Ford. designer. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, it's like every ten film. years, he makes a movie and mm -hmm. it wins a bunch of awards, and then he just goes back to clothes. Yeah, what was All the right, first one? Like an, an American man was that? A single man. A single, single man. man. Yeah, that I movie was so it. tragic. Yeah, it's tragic. It's it's a very sad film, but beautiful. Oh my god. The clothes, yeah. the furniture, the cars, everything is just like it's it's you can tell it's a Tom Ford film. Yeah. Um Nocturnal Animals is fucked up though. Such yes, a good movie. <laughs> uh I love how it's layered, you know, how she's like reading the script and you were also yeah. watching it at the same time. And you're never confused about which storyline is which. Right. Um, and, and I saw some behind the scenes stuff where he was talking about creating a very specific look for each timeline, for each storyline, because he didn't want there to be any confusion. Um, that would be what, uh, that would be the, that'd be blocking. No, that'd be the business. Which one would that be? No, that would be, uh, art direction really. Um, yeah. Cause that's, that's about that. That's a little bit broader of like giving a look to a story. A time not period. not blocking a business or like when you're filming an individual scene. So. And it, okay, word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, there was there was so good And that one scene where I think it's Jake Gyllenhaal who's basically like naked. <laughs> hey, bro! Like he was like ripped for that one. And nocturnal animals. Yeah, I'm thinking isn't that maybe I'm thinking of a different movie. I mean, there's like one scene where he's crying in the bathtub. Maybe that's it. It's like ten seconds. Is that? No, there's one where like he's like he's a bad guy and um he's like the cop comes up to him like and he's sitting on like on a toilet outside. Oh, that wasn't Jake Gyllenhaal though. That um, was somebody that? else. <laughs> I know okay. I know the scene you're talking about. Oh <laughs> no, I got him confused with the other guy. Um, yeah. Aaron Tyler Johnson Taylor Johnson. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that man is beautiful. He was a guy from uh, Kick-Ass. Okay. Apparently, he's, like, super straight. Like, he has, like, six kids or something with his wife. Good for him. 
I know. I'm like, somebody needs to make babies because we're not doing it. Fuck. Okay. And then since I mentioned him, Jake Gyllenhaal, he pissed off somebody in the like academy. recently right? or? No it, no, it had to have been a while ago because almost every year he gives a really strong performance in a movie and he hasn't been nominated for anything since Brokeback Mountain. Maybe he doesn't eat the baby. That's my my way of saying he's not in their little satanic pedophile club. Maybe he he did something to to anger them or something. Maybe <laughs> he is the only celebrity that I the only movie star that I followed on social media because his Instagram is really funny. At least back when I followed it, I'm not on Instagram anymore. He was actually really funny. Um, and that's one I see. We we were kind of I was in a bit of a conversation about this on Twitter the other day. The there the movie star is over because movie stars used to be very protected by uh, the, the studios that they were contracted with. And so you really didn't see or hear anything about them outside of like the very controlled uh, stories that the studios allowed to be to be published. And now with social media, like you said, these are people who just love the fame, love the attention. They feel the need to put their faces on your screen at every available opportunity. And so then you're getting, it's like you watch a really good movie where, you know, I don't know, Anne Hathaway gives a great performance. And then you follow her on Twitter and she's like complaining about uh, how her neighbor like drives a car that's too big. And she's calling people in the middle of the country idiots or something. I don't know if she does that on Twitter. I'm just coming up with an example but right, you know, right and it just ruins that actor for for you like the next time you go see them in the movie you're like oh but you're kind of a jerk <laughs> um, and i could put that away if i just never heard from you but right. you're the one who is trying to put yourself on my screen at every every available opportunity so yeah well i think we we can wrap it up there we've gone about yeah. 92 minutes um Seth, your book is Come Out and Play. You guys can find it on Shmamazon. Uh, let me see. I can pull it up again here. Do, 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 do. Whoop. It's really good. Yeah, go read Seth's book. Um, I got to read it, too. I've been meaning to get around to it now that I've finished my. Maybe I'll read that between the next Hyperion book. It's a pretty quick read. It's not even 300 pages. Yeah, no, I could show you. Where's mine? Mine, mine might. Can you still buy mine? That's a good question. Probably. Uh, Brent Cope. Oh, is that your pen name? Yep. Well, that was my pen name for this. But yeah, this is it. My cute little sci-fi fantasy. It was actually a. It's a. It's a fun little stupid book about a kid with superpowers who uh, ends up. Um, having to uh, basically unite two parallel worlds and he gets help from the so everybody has like a parallel version of themselves in another universe and the his version of himself is a dragon in this other world and so both of them are basically being hunted and so they get sort of driven together and then there's a whole ensemble cast, uh, parallel storylines, reference, references to uh, <laughs> like satanic cults and uh, child sacrifice and things like that. Um, and these like dark entities, all those like eyeballs things are basically that's like the, the darkness 
uh, that sort of whispers and controls like the the bad guys. So gotcha. it's it was fun. I enjoyed writing it. I'll probably get back to it eventually. But um, anyway, guys, thanks for listening, hanging out. Uh, we'll probably do a live stream in the not too distant future. Um, and we'll be back talking again about more controversial subjects. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, do all the things. And uh, thanks so much. We'll be back again. Bye-bye.